Buongiorno a tutti. Benvenuti to Kimberly's Italy, a podcast about our love of all things Italian. My name is Kimberly Holcomb, and I'm here with Tommaso. Absolutely. Fabuloso, fabuloso, magnificent. Oh, <laughs> Let's start over. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Carrying on. <laughs> My God, things have gone to his head. We get a lot of compliments and, oh, Tommaso's so funny. I love his, your banter. He's so great. It's going to your... La testa. <laughs> Go into your head. You guys, stop all the compliments. Just throw them my way instead. <laughs> How's that? That's a great idea. Okay, yeah. Buon idea. Yeah. All right, we have a really fabulous, speaking of favoloso, we have a fabulous episode today. But first, I want to give a shout out to a woman named Debbie in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who thanked us for all the information we share in our podcast which helped her plan her next trip, her upcoming trip to Umbria, Puglia, and Napoli. And we, to be honest, have many, many people tell us the exact same thing. And it makes us quite happy to know that our efforts to produce this podcast each week is truly valuable to others to help them plan their own Italian vacations. The same woman also asked why I don't list the names in our show notes of some of the hotels I occasionally mention in some episodes. Well, plain and simple, travel planning is our business. Our episodes, as you've noticed, do not have ads, and we've kept it that way since day one, and we're almost at year three, right? 132 episodes in. Uh, I think the third week of April is the third year since we started this. Anyway, I share all of those fabulous hotels that I mentioned and the villas, restaurants, and my favorite tour guides with the people who engage me to plan their trips. I know that all of us are used to free information on the web, but we do need to be compensated for our expertise. And we'd also like to thank one other person, a woman from Australia, and this is so funny because she I just saw a direct message she sent me on Instagram two seconds ago before I walked in here. And her uh, review on Apple Pod... Can I just say one thing here? You've been hitting me in the past, correcting me for not following up on the Facebook commentary. Oh, hold on. (laughs) Okay. You guys can't see us here, but can I just... I've got these big arrow shooting at you because I just admitted something's weird with my phone on Instagram. There were four messages from two weeks ago that just popped up today. So you guys, I'm on top of things. My phone is just, you know, I don't know. Continue on. Continue on. Thank you very much. So this woman named Anita wrote a review on Apple Podcasts in Australia, and we can only see them through a software, through our analytic um, yeah, analytics, we, right. but we see them on specific software. We cannot see them on Apple podcast reviews in America. Right. Correct. So Tommaso found the review and it was so sweet. And she said she wishes she had friends like Tommaso and me to travel with. What a compliment is that? Right. 
And we're all ready to go if you're buying the wine. <laughs> Oh, jeez. That's all you need is wine? Brunello. Barolo. She said she's going to be there in April, and guess what, Anita? So will we. Let me know where you're going to be, and who knows? We might meet up for a spritz. Allora, the timing of this episode is funny because of what I was just talking about two minutes ago about not giving away my secret spots or listing them in the show notes. And that is because we are going to share our story of an amazing day that we had this past October at a vineyard called Nostra Vita. That means our life. And I've shared this name before, actually. And we dedicated the entire episode, number 28, to this vineyard and the family that runs it because it's such an extraordinary experience. Let me first say, before we get into this, that Nostra Vita does not offer wine tastings where you pay a certain price per person to go taste a few wines. This is a two to three hour excursion. It's almost like a class where you learn about the soil on their property and the Val d'Orcia region. You learn about the family's history with the land, the weather elements and how it affects their vines and every single organic process they implement to bring these grapes to life or into a bottle or into our glass, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of paying for a tasting, you are immersed in one of the most interesting couple of hours you could possibly have. And then in exchange, you purchase a couple of cases of their wines to ship back to your country. And you should know that shipping internationally is not cheap. However, you can research what it might cost per case to ship to wherever you do live. If anyone is interested in visiting Nostra Vita, send me an email and I will make the introduction if you'd like, because I love sharing the amore of Nostra Vita. So Tommaso heard about my first trip there in 2021 and our friends from here, our good friends Jeff and Abby, hired me to plan their trip in 2018. So they went to Nostra Vita first, before me. And in 2018, they texted me that very afternoon to tell me it was one of the best experiences they've ever had. And they're quite well-traveled and they've been around, right? And then, of course, the other photos come in via text. And the last one was Jeff and Hannibal, the vintner, the owner. They exchanged vests. They are both vest guys. Best men, they are. Best men, best, best guys. <laughs> that was in 2018 and 2021, my trip, my first trip. And finally, this past October was Tommaso's turn to experience Nostra Vita. So, do tell. Do tell. Well, it's kind of long and kind of complicated, but I'll tell you, I'm going to reiterate a lot of things that you said at the beginning, but in a little bit more detail. So when you came back from that first trip, one of the trips where you went to Nostra Vida, I was enamored what I heard and the quality of the wine that we drank when you shipped some back. And it was just wonderful. I mean, we like red wine. We love red wine. Yes. And <laughs> we took a few bottles of that Brunello to our friend Vivi's house. One oh, night, right. Oh, right. And she was jumping up and down saying this was the best wine, red wine she'd ever had. No, she loves wine as well, and she was screaming, this is the best wine ever. 
we also have a case and a half left of the wine we've shipped home, and we actually have only had one bottle of, I know. of it, and including a special bottle, which we have, which I'll tell you about in a minuto. So, <laughs> needless to say, when I heard we were going there, I was very, very excited. I mean, it was like going the highlight of the 111 highlights of that last trip, that's for sure. And I heard about Anibal, the owner of wait, the- Wait, wait. First, I just want to say something out loud. I am not 100% sure how to pronounce his name, and I was trying to text his daughter, Carlota, so she could send me a voicemail so that we'd have it down. It's spelled as if we say Anabale, but I think it's more Hannibal, and I apologize from the get-go to the family that we're not 100% sure of the correct pronunciation. Okay. Good enough. I'm going to call it what I will call it, and that's the way it'll be for right now. Okay. Okay. I'd heard a lot about Anabali, the founder of the vineyard and the owner, and he's a combination of a vintner, an artisan, an archaeologist, historian, sculptor, et cetera, et cetera. I can keep going down the list, and it's hard to describe in words because the adjectives that come to mind in my three hours there were immersive, magical, complete artistry, and craftsmanship. It was just a very different experience than what I thought it would be. I mean, when you go to a vineyard, and I've been to a number of vineyards, mostly in the south of France, north of uh, right around Saint-Tropez from various regattas, and it would be somewhat formal, and it's not as eclectic. It's not as immersed in the history and the craftsmanship that I saw here. And I won't say it's not as authentic, but... It can be a little bit, they're there. To, what are you talking about? The vineyards in the south of France? Yes, they're, you know, they can be a little bit, sell you some wine. Commercial. Commercial. This was true artistry, an eclectic artistry. And by the time you got to the wine, it was almost like you needed, you needed to calm your senses down. The wine was helpful in the end. The wine was fantastic, and we did buy two cases to ship home. But you started out the tour with a walkthrough through these various rooms that he had created sculpture and carvings and the writing that he d had done and the books he had made. But the whole experience was one that was, again, going back to the archaeologist and the artisan and the craftsmanship and the history. You know, you were in this family's domain with a deep dive into what I will describe as a creative genius. And apparently he is recognized as one of the foremost historians slash archaeologists of Etruscan history and archaeology. He's done a lot of research into the Etruscans, and they were basically the founders of present-day Italy, particularly Tuscany. A lot of what they built, unfortunately, doesn't remain because when the Romans came to power, they basically just trashed Tuscany. And I even heard of a story where in the 15th century, one of the popes took all these Tuscan bronze sculptures and had them melted down so he could do something in a church. That has happened yes. historically. So a lot of that historical evidence is gone today, or it's buried somewhere. But from the moment you walked in and just saw the tool set, and as an example, the tool set that Anabali carved all of his sculptures with, he didn't go out and buy them at a store. He basically made them from scratch. The steel, the handles, the handles were beautiful. Various types of wood together. They were craftsmanship in and of themselves. And I actually took some images while we were there of the tool sets. And we'll post them on your Instagram account. 
you walk through, you get the full experience about all the wine and how it was made, various vintages and various different types of wines they make there. They have a Brunello, but they also have a Rosso di Montalcino because they are very concerned about where the grapes and the weather the grapes get. And some grapes just aren't good enough for Brunello. They make a different type of wine. But they talk about how the land in the area, they break it down for you. I, what was the gentleman's name? Who was Niccolo. There? Niccolo. He has like a PhD in pretty much everything, I think. Agriculture. Agriculture. Viniculture. Yes. He, w- he is fantastic. And he lived in California for nine months. His exactly. English, his English perfect. was perfect. Um, so is Carlotta's. Yes. So, you know, you, they told you all about the grapes and where they can be grown. In this small vineyard, they grow three different varietals of grapes so they can make their different wines. Getting down to the nitty-gritty, slicing and dicing the soil in the area so it's just the right grape. And I just think that this type of immersion into what they do, it just enhances the experience so much. You can do a 360 at the top of the hill there, as we did, and turn around and see three different fields with different varietals of grapes growing, and they're very closed off. You know, they talked about how at one point they had a little problem some bugs or some disease was attacking one of the vines, but not the other vines. So the experience starts off with that general introduction and then a tour of the artwork and the process and the materials for storage for future projects. And he's created so much. He must have a 48-hour day. I know. We always joke. Do you ever sleep? I know. Do you ever sleep? (laughs) I have a hard enough time getting this podcast done, never mind doing everything he's done. And... Then you start going through what can only be described as a personal museum. And the winemaking process and the beautiful section where the various vintages are stored. And then we had the tasting in a beautiful modern glass pavilion overlooking the vines. The contradiction of the IMPay type glass cube. Yes, yes. And behind you is everything old, handmade. It's like... It's, yeah. It's it's amazing. As we left, though, Annabali came over to me and gave me a magnum of 2011 vintage Brunello. Uh, he instructed me in his broken English to open this and let it breathe for three to four hours before drinking it. We haven't touched it yet. It's no. sitting down there. We've hidden it. We've hidden it. <laughs> the other wines we bought are 2000 and I think 2016 vintage Brunello. They're delicious. And he doesn't speak English and I don't speak Italian. But throughout the whole day, we had beautiful communications. So historical records, carvings, artwork, in addition to the wines, I mean, it's a truly amazing legacy that he will leave behind. And if you can experience this, I only have one thing to say. You'll be lucky. Yes, it is really incredible. And the clients that I sent there this summer one woman in particular, Tui, she sent an email that I had to forward along to Carlota, Nicolo, and Annabale for them to read. And it's just this, it's, it's a circle of love. How about that? <laughs> okay. All right. Now, let me share another very cool story about one other client's visit to Nostra Vita. We met a man named John a few years ago here in Rhode Island on our little island and he was working on our new neighbor's property below doing the landscaping. So we got chatting, whatnot. We saw him every day for months. So we told him about our podcast, and he mentioned that he and his family love 
traveling to Italy. They go all the time. So the following year, he hired me to plan a trip for them. So knowing how much the land and the soil and the stone mean to John as a landscaper, as a stonemason, I included a visit to Nostra Vita. I said, do you like wine? He said, of course. I said, this is even beyond wine. I think you'll really enjoy it. So apparently, while they were doing their tasting at the end of the visit in the glass cube, one of John's daughters showed Annabale and Carlotta photos of the stonework that John had done at his home in Rhode Island. And I've been to his house as well. I've seen it in real life, and it looks just like a mini Toscana Giardino, like a Tuscan garden. A Tus- it's Tuscany in Rhode Island. Right here in Rhodey. Right. It's very impressive. And he did it all by hand. So fast forward a few months, Annabale and Carlotta invited John to return to Multalcino and be a participant in their artist in residency. So Annabale first suggested in those few months before he showed up when they were going over ideas for designs, he suggested that John design and build an Etruscan temple. In, John, two, in two weeks. John told me on the phone the other day, he goes, that's a little daunting. No, I can't do that. So then Anabali said, oh, well, okay. How about just the entrance to an Etruscan temple? And he's like, no. <laughs> so in the end, they agreed and John built a small amphiteatro, meaning the amphitheater seating, the half circle, two layers of stone, which we got to see during this trip. You can probably see it about 25 people, 30 people in it. Maybe more, maybe 40 or so. Depends on how close you want to get. Well, regardless, it took John two weeks of physical labor with stone that they sourced locally. And when he finished, his wife and the same two daughters that had visited the previous September came back to visit. And by then, loro tutto familia. Everyone was family. And John carved the name Giovanni, which is the equivalent of John in Italian, and the Roman numerals for 2023 on the side of one of the stone steps. I took a picture of it. It's awesome. So that made me feel so good to know that a landscaper and a stonemason from the smallest state in America contributed to a -a one-of-a-kind vineyard in the small area of Multalcino and made something that will stand there or be sat on, I should say, for hundreds of years to come. Que bel storia. Absolutely. Right? What a good story. Yes. It's our our little contribution to Annabali. It was really, really an endearing thing that happened. Allora. After we left Nostra Vita, we drove to San Quirico di Orcia because I had never been there. I had only driven through it, but I thought it would be a sweet place for lunch. Otherwise, return all the way to Montepulciano or go elsewhere. I said, let's go to San Quirico. Besides, the name is good, right? So we did the usual routine of finding the public parking spot outside of the Centro Storico. And to remind everyone of the travel tip regarding parking... The blue lines are for anyone, public, but you have to pay for them at the freestanding kiosk thing. White lines are free for anyone. Therefore, they're normally impossible to find 
an empty space with white lines. The yellow lines are for residents and disabled parking. Actually, let me add that a very astute listener pointed out just last week that in a recent episode, I said, oh, so Tommaso and I found a free parking space in the blue lines. And she corrected me and said, the white lines are free. I was like, oh, man, you are on your game. (laughs) So I just failed to say that we paid for it. Or maybe I got the white blue mixed up. Regardless, I just get so excited when we find one of those coveted blue or white lines like, go get it. Anyway, like all of Tuscan villages, we walk through the stone wall to enter and most of that 15th century wall is still intact and quite well preserved. These in San Quirico di Orcha, they actually had a restoration project not that long ago for the walls. However, we entered on the opposite side from the Porta Cappuccini. Porta, as you remember, means gate, door. So Porta Cappuccini in San Quirico is the only Porta left of the city's very first wall. And it's really unique compared to the average arched medieval entry like the one we entered on our way in that day. This Porta Cappuccini is a six-sided stone body and it almost has like a barrel type entry compared to an arch. And... I took a quick walk to see Porta Cappuccini and Chiesa San Francesco, another church, naturally, while you guys were enjoying your birra, waiting for our lunch in that idyllic little piazza. Beer versus church. I'm with the beer. (laughs) Yeah, but you missed Porta Cappuccini. I will say, to be honest, that once you start visiting all these medieval villages, they can start to feel similar due to the fact they're all stone, they're all small, they're all ancient, they all have walls surrounding the villages. So you could have a hard time remembering them unless you take a load of pictures to, you know, jog your memory. However, my suggestion is to really pay attention to the porta, to the entrance that you're walking through. And I say this because as you watch tourists around you, enter a place, they just walk through the arch. No one looks up, not no one, but the average tourist doesn't realize what they're walking through. And what its purpose was a long time ago. Right. They're like, oh, stone arch, walk through. So if you start to pay attention to these portas, to these gates, these stone wall entries, you can start to notice the difference in the thickness or the various stones they're made of different color stones or brick or huge boulders, etc. And then you can almost visualize what that village must have looked like. So, for example, San Quirica di Orcha, what did that look like 800 years ago from its arch in comparison to the smaller village of Montefalco that you and I went to in Umbria a few days earlier? The depth, the thickness of that arch in Montefalco was intense compared to the one we entered in San Quirico. Well, a lot of it can be defined as what they were defending against. and Exactly. That's my point. And San Quirico was a much bigger player due to its strategic location. You know, yes. straight north from Rome, you go through San Quirico, east and west, etc. But, you know, I don't know if anyone else cares about this <laughs> other than historians or engineers, but I find these stone walls, these stone portas, super interesting. 
So next time you go to a little mountaintop village anywhere in Italy, pay attention to what you're walking through. All right? After our perfect little lunch, we walked into the community garden called Horti Leonini. And if you wonder why Horti, do you get that, Tommaso? Horticulture? Ah. Interessante, huh? Mm-hmm. So this garden is called Horti Leonini. Horti. Horti and I. Horti. <laughs> Sorry. It just seems, Carrying so, on. seems yep, so appropriate. Yep, yep, yep. Nope. <laughs> Fail. <laughs> Horti Leonini is the name of this community garden, and it was laid out in 1580 by a man named, check out this name, Diomede Leoni. Diomede, I had never heard of that. And his surname is Leoni, hence the name of the garden, Leonini. You know how they always add a nini on the end to make it smaller of that, like possessive. So Diomede Leoni was a pal of Francesco di Medici, And Francesco gave him this plot of land in San Quirico to design a garden. And Diomede designed it in the classic Italian style. All those hedges, everything architecturally perfect. And in the center was a life-size sculpture of Cosimo Medici III. For those of you that know your Cosimos, Cosimo Medici III. And we were lucky because our visit that day coincided with a contemporary art exhibit by the Italian sculptor, contemporary Italian sculptor, Emanuele Gianelli. His biography on his website completely summarized his works that we saw in the garden that day. His, his website says, quote, progressive detachment from classical work. Yes. Right? That was very because, true. Right? Let me describe these. So, surrounding that three or four hundred-year-old sculpture of Cosimo di Medici were 20 or 24, I couldn't quite count from my photos, I didn't get the whole scope, of white sculptures made of some kind of white composite of overweight, naked men. And they were all on red pedestals. And each one of these overweight, naked white men has a pair of goggles on their face. But like the old-fashioned goggles you would wear in a factory doing metal work, you know, where the big sparks fly out. big up. sparks and it's really bright. You don't hurt your eyes. So right. The goggles are really, really dark. So these, I must say it was a little jarring when you walked in there because of the high contrast. It was so quirky. It was awesome. But those goggles were also white on the white, overweight, naked men. So the original sculpture in the middle of that beautiful garden of Cosimo di Medici, that was white as well. However, that was mostly carved from Carrara marble. So just picture the juxtaposition, the ancient and the new, the old classical marble style of Cosimo in his medieval attire, which, by the way, he had a very athletic physique. And then the modern pudgy dudes with goggles on, all set against this very structured and formal garden, which was in all varying shades of green. It was fantastic visually just fabulous it was wild you could see a rave in there i mean (laughs) (laughs) Um, we'll actually put a link to in the show notes yes because it's you you guys should see his work you might recognize it it's pretty incredible 
Yes. So we finished off our perfect Tuscan day by driving to Pienza for dinner that night, where we met up with our friend Paolo, the chef. He knew every single diner in that restaurant. He knew the staff. He knew the owner. So when he sat down to join us, we felt like, you know, locals. We were hanging out with a celebrity. (laughs) And that made me start thinking that evening while we were sitting there. So let me summarize this episode in particular by saying the one component that ties everything together is Paolo. He and I befriended each other via email when I first found his website in 2017. And then I hired him to take those friends we mentioned earlier, Jeff and Abby, for their trip in 2018. I said, could you take these this couple on a Tuscan drive and to a couple of vineyards. He's like, Certo. So what did he do? He took them to Nostravita. And here we are all these years later. Annabale was wearing Jeff's vest on the day we visited. Paolo came to meet us for dinner that same night in Pienza. And everyone that goes to Nostravita in the future will sit on John's Stone Amphitheater seats. Karina, see? Not to be redundant, but it goes back to what I've said many times on this podcast. It's not a small world. It's a medium-sized cocktail party. Bravo. And by listening to this podcast, you're part of that cocktail party. Oh, now we're getting good and sappy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next week's episode will be about our fantastic day, another fantastic day where we rented vintage Fiat Cinquecentos. Ours was red from 1969 and Oleandra and Beppe's was 1974 white. What a day. Va bene. Va bene. Grazie tutti. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.